This is the Data Center Frontier Show, where we tell the story of the data center industry and its future. Our show is hosted by Rich Miller, the editor of Data Center Frontier. And now here's Rich with our show. Space, the final frontier for data centers. We always used to hear about the final frontier on Star Trek from Jim Kirk and Jean-Luc Picard, our favorite captains. But today, we're going to talk all about space and the satellite industry and how they've become an increasingly important part of cloud computing infrastructure and the data center industry. We'll be talking with Doug Money, who has been writing a series of stories for Data Center Frontier about the intersection of space and the data center is the editor of Space IT Bridge, which is a publication that covers this, uh, this specialized area. Uh, in our conversation today, Doug and I are gonna talk about how the satellite industry has evolved to make some of this uh, intersection possible. Some of the use cases that you'll see for data centers and satellites and space. And the initiatives that the largest cloud computing players are pursuing as they seek to extend the cloud beyond the atmosphere. Here's our interview. I thought an interesting starting point would be just the evolution of satellite services and how that has enabled some of these space technologies that might've been uh, you know, difficult a while ago. Uh, my dad used to work in, uh, in space during the, the time of where the geosynchronous satellites uh, were the big communications tool like 23,000 miles out in space. But a lot's changed in terms of what satellites cost uh, and uh, the ability to uh, launch a, a bunch of them. Let's talk about um, the cell phone analogy. Um, back in the day when your dad was working on geosynchronous satellites, um, they were like the mainframes of the data center. They were very bespoke, very expensive pieces of hardware to build and to launch. And right. you got into this unvirtuous cycle where um, if you're going to send up something on a rocket, well, that's going to have to cost you tens to hundreds of millions of dollars because once you put it up there, you want it to work for at least like 15 years to get your money's worth. And then that turned into an issue of, well, we need to have a very reliable rocket in order to get that. And that adds costs too. So for those two reasons, um, up until like the last decade or so, building satellites was a very customized, very expensive thing. Um, and then somebody got the bright idea of, hey, why don't we use off-the-shelf electronics from the cell phone industry right. and um, roll that in with um, an iterative process of, um, well, if we launch it, it'll only be good for a couple of years. Um, but that's okay if we lose it because then we can get the next generation hardware up there and we can iterate improvements, iterate improvements. So looking at um, satellites as more disposable items, number one. And number two, looking at satellites as something you could mass produce rather than um, you know, bespoke or you know, customized that um, you move from a model of mainframe, it must work, it must be very expensive to a cell phone model as like, eh, it doesn't work, I'll go buy a new one. Or I'll, I'll, you know, and every couple of years of, oh, wow, I gotta get the latest one. Right, so. So, so you had that head flipping of, of, of one part of the virtuous cycle of things became cheaper to, um, to build. 
um, for satellites. And that, that ranges anything from like simple IoT satellites, like the size of a wine box to beer keg cooler satellites, size satellites that are, that are used for like um, imaging now. But the other part of that virtuous cycle was that people launching, launching this cheap hardware realized that um, they needed to, to, to get cheaper and launch. And then, so they started doing two things. They started using, um, uh, doing ride shares, um, whereas, hey, I'm launching this big, huge, expensive geosynchronous satellite, but hey, I got a few things on here so I can stick like two or three or four um, small satellites, the size of a wine box or, or something like that. So, so people would ride share or hitchhike uh, um, and then the other part was we had a lot of competition um, in terms of building smaller rockets um, that were like the, the Ubers um, are directly to launching smaller satellites into specific orbits. So uh, launch started getting cheaper as well. Um, so now you can go and um, it used to be cost, you know, uh, $100 million to launch something into orbit, but you needed to have very big packages. Um, now you can go to SpaceX and, and um, launch something into launch something rather large into orbit for 50, 60 million dollars. But the next step down um, are folks like Rocket Labs where you can launch something like, you know, like maybe one or two of these beer cube size satellites along with a lot of smaller satellites for the price of, you know, 10 million dollars. That's a sort of opened a lot of interesting use cases. Um, Tell us a little bit about uh, your publication, Space IT Bridge. You kind of look at that. How did you, you get started with that and get, get into uh, specializing in the satellite field? Well, I've, had, I've always had one foot in telecom um, IT industry. I started out um, working with an internet service provider in the 90s and then um, around 2000 plus minus around uh, .com before .com went to dot .bomb. I, I, we, we did a satellite um, startup to push or refresh caches at the edge of the internet. You know, that didn't work because uh, .com became .bomb, number one. And number two was the fact that we had assumed that broadband, that there was gonna be an infinite amount of um, broadband demand. And what happened was that fiber basically blew everybody's, uh, the oversell of fiber in that era shot everybody to hell basically. But you know, again, live and learn. So I've been trying to use my writing to fund my, um, my junky habit of going to see rocket launches. Don't tell the uh, PR people at NASA. Um, oh, but we're in social media now. So it's like, you know, that's, you're just like, yeah, okay, come on, come, we'll hug you. Um, when I was working with um, the folks at, uh, at, at TMC and, and some other um, trade shows, you know, I was able to go see rocket launches and, and, and a unique opportunity opened up where I was, was at. Uh, they run, they launch rockets um, several times, well, at least a couple of times a year out of uh, Wallops Island in, um, out on the east coast of Virginia, which is very unique things. You know, I got one foot in the telecom slash IT industry, data center industry, and I got one foot in the, hey, I wanna see some rockets. What I saw, what I started to see was the, the evolution of people realizing that the aerospace and satellite industry basically are the, the, they're the, they're the tail that wags the dog. They think that everything should be built around them. Around them. And that was true in an era where you had, again, you go back to the bespoke, very expensive satellites, be they communication satellites or imaging satellites. Um, however, you had a lot of young revolutionaries who saw the virtuous cycle of lower cost launch and lower hardware. And they said, hey, maybe we can flip this around and, and, and um, uh, use data as our, as our driving point. Right, right. Um, because if you look at 
imaging satellites. They generate a ton of data a day. And um, if you look at companies like uh, Planet, they generate tens of terabytes a day of, of imaging. And then, you know, you just do the math, you know, 10 times 365, and you have all this, this big data that you have to deal with. Right. So taking a step back, a lot of companies realize, uh, a, a lot of the new startups or new spacers realize that you don't really have, this is not an aerospace satellite issue. This is a data issue. And, and then, and then, you know, once you start talking about large data, then all of a sudden you see, you know, what's coming in from space is, is data and you need to process it, you need to store it and you need to give, deliver it to customers. So that's the reason why you see the, the space world and the IT emerging. But I, I think the key thing that the satellite people, the, the old school satellite people don't like to hear is that it's an IT driven marriage. It's not a, it's not a satellite driven marriage. You mentioned one of the applications that I think is really interesting, which is imaging. I don't know about you, I'm a huge fan of Google Maps uh, and, and all of the mapping applications uh, that use satellite imagery, partly because it allows me to see data centers all around the world in a way that you can't. An old thing in the data centers is like, yeah, you know, my, you might say you have 10 megawatts, but you know, everybody can uh, look at you on satellite and see how many generators you really have. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, I'm a big user of that, but uh, I'm curious, maybe from like sort of an IT and, and data perspective, what are some of the use cases for imagery? Uh, how are people using the, the, uh, the imagery that's being generated from these satellites? And, and has that fit, what's the sort of IT uh, implications of that? Imaging is big and, and we've only started to scratch the surface of it. And again, we go back to the issue of very bespoke application once upon a time, very expensive. I mean, you know, the, the only people who could really quote unquote buy satellite images, imaging initially was the US government um, for, for its application. And then you started to, it, for, for it to trickle down or built into large corporations, um, right. just such as, uh, you know, Google for Google Maps. That's like really kind of like, a, I don't wanna say niche application, but it's, it's a very niche application that's, that's, that's driven a lot of things. And then once um, imaging starts to proliferate a little bit more, you see other folks talking, hopping in there where you, where you have high value types of applications for planners or, or, or companies that they might not have thought about initially. Like for instance, the insurance industry. A hurricane rolls through Florida and, you know, or, or rolls through, uh, or tornadoes roll through the Midwest. How much is it gonna cost? Why imaging is valuable is, becomes, is becoming more valuable and will be used by more people is what some are calling the time machine application where you take a picture of everything, you know what it looks like. And then looking at the number of parked cars in a, in a shopping center or shopping right. centers around the United States. Right. Well, you know, January, uh, December, January last year, a lot of cars in uh, parking lots in the US, uh, you know, no COVID primary shopping season. Well, fast forward to uh, March, April this year, they're getting a lot of cars in, in there. And it's like, well, what are we looking at cars? Well, cars driver of economic activity, you know, more cars in a parking lot, more people shopping. So, but in order to get that value of, of time machine, you need two things. You need to have pictures over a long period of time so you can 
fast forward or go back and, and again, do a comparison, an AV type of comparison. Well, it was like this, not like this. And the other thing is granularity. That is the ability to actually picture smaller and smaller things um, on, the, on the picture you take. Back in the day, it used to be that, you know, you could take a picture and, and you know, basically film, you know, how many cars are in a parking lot, you know, one meter-ish resolution, basically. Right. But you couldn't tell the difference between a minivan and a uh, Volkswagen because the resolution wasn't good enough. Now we're down from like one meter resolution down to, to higher granularity, higher resolution, where you can only take uh, pictures where you can 30 centimeters differentiate um, between an object like 37 or meter resolution. That is, so, you know, instead of a meter, they've got a 30 meter. So now you've got a, a, an image net net that you can tell between a Volkswagen and a minivan. And in some cases, that information would be valuable to whoever's using the satellite. You know, number of shipping right. containers are moving between ports in the US and ports in China. Yeah, there, it seems like there have been some interesting use cases in tracking different types of commerce and economic activity. Uh, you know, and I've heard those farming examples uh, as well. One of the things you mentioned before was that it, it creates a ton of data. Some of these image files are, are, are really large. Well, it, the interesting thing is that, again, um, Planet takes, I think, 10 terabytes a day, every day. And they are upgrading their satellite. So all of a sudden, right. they're going to go from 10 terabytes a day to 14 terabytes a day. So you start getting into this Captain Insano levels of data that you need to store, process, and deliver to customers. If you're a data center operator, and, and uh, number one, you have to be among the big boys just to process that much data every day. Number two, you get a customer like that, you know, you're sending them the golf clubs every year for Christmas. I mean, you're not sending them the little, they're not, you're not sending them the little cheesecake. So uh, at the other end of the spectrum, one of the use cases that we have going from sort of large data to small data is the Internet of Things. You've written a little bit uh, for uh, Data Center Frontier about some of the Internet of Things use cases, uh, how satellites can fit into widely distributed uh, you know, devices and applications. Tell, tell me a little bit about uh, uh, what the Internet of Things uh, applications are for, for satellite and how that helps. Well, I think I'll talk about two things. I'll talk about extending coverage, number one, and number two, also talk about synergies or overlaying data. Overlaying data is something that not a lot of people talk about, but you start thinking about the possibilities. IoT, basically, um, you know, the, the, the cellular people don't like to admit it, but, you know, they don't cover everywhere in the world. They don't cover oceans. They don't cover the Midwest. They don't cover, like, five minutes outside of my mom's house in some cases. I mean, it doesn't, all this buzz about 5G and all that, um, you know, marketing-driven crack just doesn't work. So you need to have an, a ubiquitous network that um, can track a thing anywhere on the planet. If you don't have a cell network, you have to have satellite. The, the new generation of IoT companies is that you get data picked up via satellite. You can track anything on the face of the earth, anywhere, you know, if you're outside of cell coverage. And, you know, so theft tracking, um, remote sensors, um, you know, monitoring of oil wells, monitoring of, of, of uh, gas wells, anything outside of cellular coverage, you know, driving from coast to coast even. Um, one of the applications that's uh, um, uh, that it's a, a very interesting is automotive. Um, there's a company called Swarm Technologies that's launching right. these really timely satellite. I mean, uh, satellites that I like to say the size of a piece of Texas toast. So if you think of it, a piece of toast about that thick, that's how big their satellites are. Right. So so they're going to throw up. So 
you know, basically they're working with Ford um, and in order to embed um, IoT technology. So for, um, if you're at a normal cell phone coverage and God forbid you get into an accident, then you'll have a, a message thrown up to the overhead swarm satellite going, hey, airbag deployed um, at, this, uh, at this GPS location because your car already has a GPS in it. Right. Um, you know, airbag deployed at this location, uh, please contact the local uh, public safety infrastructure and have somebody look at it, you know, so rather than you like laying in your car for two days, they, you know, they can get to you in, in relatively short order. And the other nice part about IoT is that you're collecting data on a regular basis from everything. So then you just, then that all gets schlepped into the data center and you process it and you store it and, 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 and that's all good. Once you have all that IoT data, then you can combine it and mesh it with um, imaging data. Give you, for instance, again, if you're, um, you know, all of a sudden there's a, you, you, your, your IoT um, reporting says that all of a sudden the uh, COVID vaccines um, that you're shipping to the middle of the country are backed up around Denver. Well, what's going on in Denver? Well, let's go to the imaging. And then you look down and you see that, oh, there's a traffic backup at this thing. But, but being able to combine IoT data with imaging data and other types of data, you know, like social media, et cetera, et cetera, is going to give you a bigger picture of the window than just IoT or just imaging. Some of the uh, uh, sort of uh, business connections that have been uh, uh, really interesting to see develop <clears throat> is how uh, the cloud computing platforms have become interested in, uh, in space and in, in satellite technology as sort of an extension of what they do. Uh, you've written a couple of stories for, for us on that. Uh, I know that the first one that we talked about a lot uh, uh, is Amazon Web Services. Obviously the, the largest provider of cloud computing services in the world uh, with a, a uh, chairman with an interest in rockets. Amazon Web Services has been uh, sort of an, an early player here. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about about Amazon and, and what they're doing and, and why it's interesting? Well, Amazon was, was very, was one of the first companies to realize that imaging satellites are not in the, in the vertical market of, of, of aerospace. Imaging satellites generate data, need to process the data, and then need to deliver the data to the customer. When you start talking about cloud services, again, you have that storage, processing, you know, delivering to customers. So there's a very good synergy or synergies there, number one. But Amazon was also smart and they, they were kind of like, well, what can we do to simple, simplify the cycle between data coming down from the satellite and going into our data center, number one, and number two, where users want to tell a satellite to look at a particular location or, or adjust, the, adjust the function of the satellite and saying, oh, okay, you can't, you need to pick up data from these new sensors or you need to, um, uh, change your settings um, on your radio when you're passing above, above this location in, in, uh, on Africa because there's nobody there and save power, whatever. So Amazon realized, hey, dashboards are good. One pane of glass is good. So Amazon developed this service to um, basically to control tasks, if you want to use the aerospace term, to, to task satellites um, as to what they do. And Basically, it was one-stop shop rather than before. It was like, well, I got to task my satellites over here, and I got to gather data over here. And you know, Amazon—it's one-stop shopping, and you know, Amazon loves the one-stop shop, um, and as users love the one-stop shop. So, for 
a lot of the new startup new space companies that are building these these lower cost satellites, they can just go into Amazon and, and it's I don't want to say it's just about turnkey. You know, they don't have to build their own network to collect data um, around the globe. They don't have to build a network to control their satellites. It's just, well, I'll go to Amazon, I'll buy the service. Oh, hey, it's cheaper than the other guys. And, you know, my data automatically ends up in the cloud. So it's all good. And in terms of the infrastructure piece of that, uh, they fairly early on had this ground stations offering. Yes. And since then, they've got a satellite component too. Tell, tell me a little bit about, you know, what they've done there and, uh, and how it all works. Well, Amazon ground station, again, is that one pane of glass deal where, you know, again, basically um, you can control um, satellites uh, through the Amazon, uh, the cloud. And part of that um, issue is that Amazon's going to start building out um, data centers with satellite dishes on the side or, or um, on top of the data center. You know, again, it's hard to say because you don't know how big the dishes are, number one. And number two, you don't know how big their roofs are. But, you know, so basically uh, you'll be able to do everything from uh, one-stop shopping from Amazon. Um, so that's, that's the, the, the near-term excitement. Now, the interesting part is with this is that once Amazon develops a system to control and operate satellites, hmm, what can I do with that? Um, so they can apply that service down the road in-house when they deploy their own broadband network. Connecting the cloud with satellites, um, you know, Microsoft's no dummies. Um, they, you know, they figured out that being able to have connectivity between the cloud and um, users, wherever the users are on the planet, um, is a good thing. So Microsoft, the light bulb went on in their head that they needed to um, connect their cloud to satellite in order to service, basically in order to service the US government first, and then uh, also larger corporations that, that have um, uh, data intensive assets that are on a traditional uh, fiber network or data path for lack of a better term. Um, you know, if you go back and you think about Microsoft Azure won the big uh, DOD contract and I, I suspect a part of that win-win uh, for them was that Azure was able to say, Microsoft Azure was able to say um, that, hey, we're going to connect our data centers to satellite. So if you're putting a data center out in the middle of nowhere in Africa or in the Middle East or um, something like that, um, or on an aircraft carrier, hey, we can um, direct haul back to... Um, the, the, um, the Azure cloud and um, with satellite. So DOD is like, okay, that's a good idea. Part of the issue with, with Amazon was that they were saying, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll plug in these, we'll plug in Project Cooper in, into that one when, when we get our satellites up and DOD is like, no, uh, we need this tomorrow, not five years down the road when you get satellites up. Uh, Microsoft, you look good using um, this service from uh, SES satellites today and Oh, look, our good friend Elon Musk is building a service too. So, you know, you know, SES today, Elon Musk, you know, testing now. Okay, well, DoD is like, you know, instant gratification if there's anybody. Connectivity to the cloud everywhere is what's driving these deals, both with Microsoft and with um, um, Amazon. And I suspect down the road, you'll probably hear something from Google, but, you know, Google kind of like Google's, level of formality compared to Microsoft and Amazon is, you know, they're a lot more loosey-goosey.
this has been a really interesting overview of some of the things that we've seen thus far in the relationship between satellites in space and uh, the data center industry. It, it seems like with the way the cloud computing players are approaching this, that the kind of cloud infrastructure that has been going everywhere uh, around the globe soon will like incorporate a lot of space components into it. What are, what are the opportunities? You, you track, you've been tracking this pretty closely. Uh, what do you see as some of the interesting ways in which uh, uh, satellites and, and, uh, and space commerce might play into the, the traditional ground-based uh, data center and cloud industry? I think how, how does edge computing work in this model, right? There are, there are times when you want to have compute power close to or, or as, as, as close as possible to the user as you want. You know, this may be like if you're doing mining in the middle of nowhere and you're automatically tracking um, machines or uh, dump trucks is twice the size of my house running through a mine and you're controlling them through AI or you're, you're just monitoring them, you want to make sure that you want to stop the dump truck like immediately, not 300 to 400 milliseconds later when it drives off the cliff. So, um, you know, that's a, you know, because satellite occasionally breaks up rain, you know, somebody gets in front of the dish, whatever. You want to have edge computing right next to or as close to the application as possible. Where do you put the edge? Do you put the edge in a hardened container right next to the app? Or do you put the edge in a satellite or a cluster of satellites that go overhead and do your edge computing up there and you know, do whatever? I mean, there's an open question. Um, and I don't, and I think the answer is I think the answer is going to be maybe all of the above, where for mm -hmm. some applications, you're going to have hardened, low-maintenance computing, you know, basically like the same stuff that Microsoft throws into the, basically throws into a container and dumps into the sea for five to seven years, except it'll be, <laughs> ex except it will be smaller, you know, it'll be like footprint sized or, or I don't want to say suitcase sized, but it'll be a smaller form factor thing and, and you'll, that's ruggedized and, and, and you do whatever. And, you know, again, that'll be like high intensity, um, high compute work, not only on the commercial side, but for US government. But there also are things, you know, but there, there are things like, like Orbit's Edge, where they're talking about putting a cluster of servers. I think they're talking about like 15 satellites, um, basically with racks on them. Right. And then, you know, off the shelf space, rack mounted computer. Yeah, Space Colo. Well, space, actually space. Space managed services, maybe. Space managed services is probably a better, they'll, they'll control all the knobs. I don't think that unless you're like government and you say, we want this. No, don't look inside of the box. We want this, just plug in the power, plug in the comms, do not look inside the box. You know, flying data centers overhead sounds like a crazy idea, but again, if you're if you're worried about time sensitive um, data processing, like again, um, raw imagery, like uh, there's a whole generation of radar-based satellites coming in and you know you don't get an image you basically get this huge data file that needs to get crunched to turn it in right. with, with with a with a radar satellite well people like orbit's edge argue that okay well if i've got a satellite flying like overhead or next to this then i'll take the data or you know the the, the imaging satellite will the imaging satellite here will take the data shoot it up here we'll process it on the on the we'll process it in real time near real time on the satellite and then zap the image down to the user. And then instead of having to wait like 10 minutes or 30 minutes, you get the image immediately. You know, so that's good for things like search and rescue on the civilian side. It's good for things like the military, like confirming targets on this side. Um, that's an area where edge processing 
in the in the sky. I don't want to say in the cloud because it's beyond the cloud. It's in the space. Right. Um, but that's where, uh, where where edge processing makes sense. There's also an, uh, an interesting argument, and I'm not really convinced about it. If you have this flying set of data centers um, doing edge processing above the earth, then maybe if you're in a developing uh, region for like wireless or 5G, um, you can take that 5G application and then um, do whatever edge app you needed to do with the overhead data center. And then, you know, rather than having to drop a data center in on a 5G cell in, in a developing area. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things about some of the uh, edge applications is that there's such a wide range of, and this is true of the Internet of Things too, there's such a, a wide range of use cases, uh, some which might need sort of continuous communications and streamings, others which are can, can just batch data back and forth, some that uh, need really low latency and, and have to be pretty yeah. local, because uh, that becomes an issue when you're talking back and forth between space. I know... The geosynchronous uh, uh, satellites, the lag was a pretty big issue, but I gather with the, the low Earth uh, uh, constellations that we're seeing now, uh, the latency back and forth from Earth to space is, is getting a lot better. The, the delay for a geosynchronous satellite is 60 milliseconds. Um, no, I think more humorously. But, um, you know, yeah, half second delay um, for anything like such as real-time control of drones or life safety or... Mm -hmm. Or you know, pipeline shut off. Yeah, you you know you want to you want to shut off the pipeline before it blows up. I mean, so there are a lot of issues where latency um, matters, um, despite the fact of the uh, there's a whole cult in the geo industry that says no latency doesn't matter. You'll just buffer it, and it's like no, it does matter. The uh, Leo people, you know, well it, Leo it, for low Earth orbit. Yeah, Leo low Earth orbit people basically instead of being twenty two thousand plus miles away from the Earth, Leo. The Leo people, you know, you're 100 miles right next door. So latency is very small, 100 miles, a couple hundred miles. Um, so latency goes from 600 millisecond round trip, 10 to 20 seconds round trip for the, for the you know, again, and then you get into the fine, fine granular details of what does the network look like? Where are you relating? But, you know, net net is that the closer you are to the earth, latency um, goes away from being a big pain in the neck to an issue. The question becomes how how fast you can do it. Elon Musk says he when he gets to his all of his next generation satellites up with laser cross links, 4,400 satellites. Um, when he gets that gener next generation network up there, he'll be able to do things faster than fiber. Which you know for you me, Rich, eh, faster than fiber was a mean. High frequency trading, some other apps that let latency matters. Those guys will pay for it too. Yeah, know. and I, you know, they, they will pay for it, but it needs to be demonstrated that A, they can actually get it, number one. Right. And number two is that it's as reliable as you say. But yeah, being able to have a, a faster than fiber link between London and, and New York City, if you're doing high frequency trading is, you know, uh, yeah, people will pay out money for that. But I think that app's going to be a couple of years yeah. down the road. You know, but for you and me, again, we, we roll back to what does latency mean? Trying to do a Zoom call or you're trying to, to gaming, half millisecond latency, you know, you might as well not even bother to get on uh, uh, Fallout or whatever your favorite right. game or kill game is because, you know, you're, you're just going to die. But if you've got latency, um, you know, in the, in the tens to 20 milliseconds, you can get in Fallout and you can go like kick some ass. All other things being equal, you have a good gaming console. So, 
so these 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 next generation of low Earth orbit communications networks um, being built by SpaceX, OneWeb, and Telesat enable high speed services. So like I know I've been hyping gaming, but look, voice and video, the two simple ones, are a lot more practical if you don't have half a second gap between um, between what you're um, talking about and what actually happens. And and those have obviously been two huge drivers for. Uh, volume of data for the the data center industry, you know, uh, video and voice. Well, Doug, listen, I, I really appreciate uh, you making time to talk to us and, and tell our uh, our listeners about uh, where the the intersection of space and, and data centers. I'm also uh, I'm a child of the space race, and so love me a good rocket launch as well. Our readers are enjoying uh, your stories on all of this on Data Center Frontier, so it sounds like there's a lot more goodies to come. For folks who are interested in uh, learning more about your work, or uh, where can they find you online? Let's see, Twitter, Doug on IPCOM, www.spaceitbridge.com. Beautiful. Well, well listen, thanks again uh, for your time and, uh, uh, and for everybody who's tuned in. Thanks for, for uh, listening and uh, uh, keep uh, watching your, your favorite uh, you know, podcast and, and video streams for, for more episodes of the Data Center Frontier Show, where we tell the story of the data center industry uh, one podcast at a time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Data Center Frontier Show. You can find the show notes for this episode at datacenterfrontier.com slash podcast, including links to the resources Rich has mentioned. Be sure to subscribe to the Data Center Frontier show at Apple, iTunes, Spotify, or where you find your podcasts. If you enjoyed this show, please tell your friends or share about it on your social channels. You can always find us on the web at datacenterfrontier.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Until next time.